From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society, a podcast that celebrates the big ideas and great thinkers who have shaped our world. I'm Patrick Spiro, librarian of the Society. To kick off our second season, we'll hear from Helen Quinn on what it means to practice science and how to teach it in schools today. Dr. Quinn is Professor Emeritus and former chair of the Department of Particle Physics and Astrophysics at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. In theoretical physics, she has helped us better understand the interactions between particles and what this tells us about matter and antimatter. After Dr. Quinn retired from Stanford, she took her scientific expertise to the National Research Council, where she led a study that produced a new framework for K-12 science education. I traveled out to Stanford to learn more about the nature of matter and how we can improve science teaching in classrooms today. Thank you, Helen, for inviting me into your home with this spectacular view in uh, Portola Valley. Is that That's how you say correct. it? correct, yes. I really appreciate uh, the time you've taken to have a conversation with me today about your career, but also about science and science's place in our kind of public dialogue and also the role of science education in the rising generations and how we can better and improve the way young people learn about science. So I thought I'd just start with a really basic question, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your own research and, and your career de development? Well, I am a theoretical particle physicist, which means I think about the very smallest things that we know of. Mm -hmm. And actually, we think they're the smallest things there are. Mm -hmm. We have good reason to think that, but that's too technical to explain at this point. So we're thinking about what's inside protons and neutrons. Mm -hmm. And I have a game I present to children, which I call a backwards jigsaw puzzle. What we see, everything in the world is made of these things. So what we need to know is what are the pieces and what are the rules for putting the pieces together such that you get the things we get and not other things that you could actually build out of the same pieces if the rules were different. So the, what we call theoretical physics is the mathematical expression of the rules for how these pieces interact with one another, and that defines what kinds of things they do and how they are put together to make all the things we see. So how did you first become interested in science and in these questions that you ultimately spent your career pursuing? Well, by the end of high school, I knew that science and mathematics was something I was good at and something I found interesting. So I started university in Australia. And at that time, I had a cadetship from the Australian Weather Bureau. And actually, the cadetship included a bond to work for the Weather Bureau for five years after I graduated. So that would have been my career path had it not been for the fact that my father decided to move, or my family decided to move because my father wanted to go from the company he worked for in Australia, which was a subsidiary of an American company, to the American company. He was invited to come as an engineer here in the Bay Area, and so therefore I was going to transfer from Melbourne University to wherever I could 
close to where he came because I went to university from home. I imagined the same thing here. I didn't think the way American kids think about going off to university. So I got a book. I looked up what was close to where he was coming, which was Belmont. And I found Cal and Stanford and applied to both of them, was admitted both places. But Stanford was more generous about credit. And since I was from out of state, the difference in price wasn't significant. So I decided to go to Stanford. And at that time, Stanford had given me three years of credit. I had to find a major I could complete in one year. And it turned out physics was the easiest major to complete, partly because of the person I was sent to in the physics department who was very generous and flexible about requirements, but partly because the courses I had taken just fit the math and, and physics that I had taken fit enough to put me in the situation where I could graduate from Stanford in a little more than a year. So when you think back on physics when you were an undergraduate and what was known and also what some of the biggest questions were at the time, and now looking back in you know the first quarter of the 21st century, what have been some of the most important discoveries in your field from that period today? And what are some of the biggest questions that still need to be answered? Okay. So there's, there's two pieces to that, I'd say. We just began to have an idea of them. So I got my PhD in 67. I got my undergraduate degree in 63. The things called quarks, which are the smallest particles that make up protons and neutrons, the idea of those things first arose in 64. So in 1964, nobody believed in quarks. They were hypothesis. So what happened was we had too many particles and Gelman and Zweig and also um, Neyman, an Israeli physicist, noticed that if you organized all the particles we knew about by certain properties, you got patterns. And the patterns could be explained by group theory. And the group theory was such that the fundamental pattern of this group theory was a set of three things. But you had to assign those three things fractions of a charge of a proton or fractions of a charge of an electron. And that seemed very weird because we'd never seen charges smaller than that charge of a, an electron or a proton, which I'd have the same charge, just opposite sign. How could there be particles that we could never see? And that meant it took quite some time, and we're at the end of the 60s, into the early 70s, before we have a theory and we begin to actually also have experimental evidence, yes, that quarks are real things. They're just confined. I mean, they're stuck inside the protons. Mm -hmm. That seems weird, but I'll explain it in a different language, okay? If you take a quark and an antiquark and you pull them apart or make them so they're flying apart, between them is the field of the gluons. Mm. And there's enough energy density in that field that you can make more quarks and antiquarks. And it turns out when you, when you look at the dynamics and the energy and entropy relationships, the probability of finding two quarks far apart and just glue in between them is as small as saying, okay, you can walk into this room, there's a perfectly possible physical state of this room where all the air is under the table, but it's a highly improbable physical state. You will never observe it. So the state of widely separated quarks or antiquarks is, is a perfectly possible but highly improbable state of the system, and therefore it's never observed. And that's what we mean by confinement. We only see the particles that are made by putting the quarks together in, in the ways that they organize themselves. Now, what was your own impression on quarks? It sounds like the way you described it, this was an idea that was controversial, if not disregarded or dismissed so by I some. Happened, but... My thesis advisor was James Bjorkane, and everybody calls him BJ. BJ was the theorist 
who was advising the experiments which happened at Slack, not when I was an undergraduate, but by the time I was finishing my PhD, these experiments were happening. And these experiments are today, they, they won a Nobel Prize and the Nobel Prize is for discovering quarks, mm. right? So among all the people in the world, I probably knew most about the experimental evidence for the quarks early on or more, aside from the people engaged in the experiment and my thesis advisor, that this idea was beginning to play out in a real way. You mentioned Slack. Um, what, is, what is Slack? Originally, it stood for Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. It is the two-mile-long electron accelerator at which the quarks were discovered. The high-energy accelerator, or atom smasher, provides the means to see what cannot be seen. There are many accelerators of varying sizes and types. All operate on the same basic principle, to shoot small subatomic particles into targets of atomic nuclei and to see what happens. In order for these particles to penetrate the nucleus of the atom, they must possess very high energies. They are given very high energies by accelerating them to almost the speed of light. The machine that does this is an accelerator. Today, it's not a particle physics lab anymore. Today, they took that same machine and turned it into an X-ray laser. So I'm a historian. Mm -hmm. So can you define for me what the standard model is, but also what string theory is? Because string theory is something that I hear about all the time. And it's, you know, something, it's the cutting edge. It's going to hold answers. Others, I've heard others dismiss it as kind of a... Well, because effort, it's been 20 going years yeah. without results, exactly. people get yeah. rather skeptical, right? Me too. <laughs> but but let's, let's start at the beginning. The, the standard model is our theory of quarks, and then the electron and other particles like the electron, so we call them leptons, quarks and leptons, and all of their interactions except for gravity. And it's written in the mathematics that I mentioned before called field theory. And field theory, for every one of these particles, there's a field, and for each of the interaction fields, there's a particle. And the mathematics is clear and well-defined. We know how to do it. We know how to calculate. And we have a predictive theory. We have a predictive theory that is very well-defined and extremely successful. So this theory was first written in the early 70s. So the Different people were focusing on different aspects. So there's a whole bunch of people who focus on weak interactions. And the weak interaction theory started with a paper from Steve Weinberg in 1967. And that paper was basically ignored because nobody knew how to do the mathematics until early 1970. So if you look at, it's an interesting history to look at the references to that paper because that's the key piece of the standard model. Mm. So that was going on. And at the same time, people were trying to understand this business of confinement and the mathematics of the theory of the strong interactions, entirely different group of people. And at this 1976 conference, I think it was uh, John Eliopoulos gave a talk where he said, we now have all the pieces. This is the strong interaction theory. This is the weak interaction theory. This is how it all fits together. And look, it works. Yeah. Were you there? I was not. At that conference was in London. I was not there. But I was one of the people pushing both of those pieces or pieces of that was at Harvard at that time. And I was at Harvard. So to me, what John said was obvious, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, all of us at Harvard had yeah, agreed completely with what he was saying. Yeah. But it wasn't that any one person wrote this theory. Mm -hmm. It developed over time with many, many, many contributions. You can't say the author of the standard model is so-and-so. 
If you really want to look at the history, there was a conference last year called Standard Model at 50, which tried to go through. I mean, there's both a, a theoretical history and an experimental history, mm-hmm. and of course, an interplay between them. Uh, it's a strange field, right? There are very few fields where the theorists and the experimentalists are completely separate. But we are, because both of them take very strong technical skills of very different kinds. And so, but the, the but you're separate, but you couldn't live without each other, though. We couldn't live without each other. Well, string theory has lived without any okay. experiment for 20 years, <laughs> yeah. so I'm not sure. I mean, it, in my mind, science is about explaining phenomena, right? And phenomena have to happen. Right, And so if we don't have any phenomena that we can actually observe, then we move a little bit outside the field of science in the traditional sense. It doesn't mean it's not interesting work and not scientific in its desires. But for example, multi-universe cosmology, it's very convincing. It's based on the same mathematics that we do particle physics in, making claims about universes outside this universe and not something we can test. Mm -hmm. So it's, in my mind, somewhat different from science. I'm not saying it's less. I'm saying it's different. And string theory so far lives in that realm too, that it hasn't yet predicted cleanly something that we could test and say, yes, the distinction... I mean, I keep talking about field theory. Mm -hmm. Field theory and string theory are different mathematics, different underlying vision. But there's a limit of string theory which becomes field theory. And if you can't make any prediction in the string theory, which is outside the capabilities of field theory and is detectable and gives you a prediction of something you can test, it's very hard to know whether that's the right extension or the wrong one. It gives some very interesting results and explains a few things that seemed strange in the mathematics. Like this, The whole question of how do you get a quantum theory of gravity is one of the reasons that pushes towards string theory. But it's still not at the point where it has moved into the realm of verified science. Mm-hmm. And, and verified is a word we have to use with care too, right? So, But I mean, there's just no experimental observation that tests the ideas of I was just going to ask if there's any way to test. And I guess maybe you could just define what string theory means. Why is it called string? I mean, what's the... Well, field theory and particle physics, field theory, the fundamental items are particles and these things I've been calling fields. Fields are things that have a value at every point in space and time. And the quantum fluctuations of those fields you can think of as little lumps of field, which we call particles. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's visualizable in, in, in one model. Uh, you know what a string is in a real world and, and mathematically you can describe something that's a string and has a shape. In string theory, the fundamental objects are string-like rather than particle-like. And the mathematics of describing string-like objects, how they move through space and fluctuate over time. So you can think of a particle as being a little lump of fluctuating string, right? Rather than a little lump of field. And the mathematics is different. One of the other uh, things I wanted to ask you about before we move on to you know science in, in the public is uh, to talk a, more about accelerators, which I think you've worked with and in. So there's a a rule in physics in general, and that's the relationship between scale and energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You probably know it for light. Different wavelengths of light carry different amounts of energy per quantum unit. And that's, in fact, where Planck's constant comes in. Energy is Planck's constant times frequency. So that the higher the frequency, 
the shorter the wavelength. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a scale that relates to a frequency, which then relates to an energy in quantum physics. This is also true when you look at, let's do atomic physics. I mean, where did quantum mechanics come? You, you, you knew the spectra of atoms, that, that a hydrogen atom had a set of excited states, and you had those transition lines as electrons went from an excited state to a lower state. And that spectrum is at an energy scale that's the inverse of the scale of atoms. Nuclear physics is at an energy scale that is the inverse of the scale of neutrons and protons. Scale and energy are intimately linked, which means that if you want to see very small things, you need to go to very high energies. When, let's just say... How big is a quark or how big is an electron? We don't know. All we know is if they were bigger than a certain size, the results of them scattering in these experiments electromagnetically would be different from those predicted by our theory for a point-like particle because we've made them come so close together that we can probe down to those sizes. And so we know that they're less than 10 to the minus 18 meters in size, which means they're very, very tiny. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask, what type of equipment is able to actually observe that? I mean, that's... Simplest case, we want to talk about the size of an electron. So you take electrons and you take, we can even do it with the two electrons. We could put two electrons in, in accelerators going against one another, or we can put an electron and a positron, which is an anti-electron. It doesn't matter. It's the same size, same. So we put, it's easier to do it with an electron and a positron if you've got some, if you can find the positrons, which you can make, which you can create in the lab. You don't really make them. You create positrons and electrons together, but you can collect up the positrons, put them in the accelerator. If you accelerate them to a high energy and put them in a ring and you put the electrons going one way and the positrons going one, another way and make them collide head on, then by the way they scatter off one another, you're observing their size. And the higher energy they're going around the ring with, the more finely you're observing their size. But what type of equipment can observe that? All we have to do is detect where they went. Okay. And the pattern of the scattering tells us. Okay. Right? There's a predicted... If you take two charges that are points and calculate the electromagnetic interactions between them, you can predict the pattern of how they scatter. So you measure many, many, many events where they scatter and you look at the, the patterns mm -hmm. and you see, does it correspond to something, two charges smeared out over a certain radius or does it correspond to charges that are smaller than the radius you can test? Wow. So that brings me up to you know an article you wrote, I think, in 1999 in Scientific America. I don't know if you remember it, but it was before the Higgs boson uh, had been detected, but you, you anticipated that it would be detected because of an accelerator that was being built in uh, Europe. Uh, but you also talked about something, and I'm going to butcher it, I'm sure, but uh, it was being done here to look at B particles or... So going on with my career. Most of my career is about understanding. I talked about the positron and I said, it's just like an electron, but the opposite charge. It's an antiparticle of the electron. And that's an amazing piece of history too, because these things were predicted by Dirac when he wrote a theory for the electron. He discovered much to his dismay that the theory said there's a particle just like the electron, but with the opposite charge. Now, it turns out that's true for all these particles with half-integer spin, and therefore also true in a less fundamental way for the particles with integer spin. But for every particle we know, there is an antiparticle. And it's made of... So if, if 
for the electron, we have a positron. For a quark, we have an antiquark. So a proton is made of antiquarks, is it made of quarks, three of them, as its fundamental structure. An antiproton is made of three antiquarks mm -hmm. and has the opposite charge, but exactly the same mass as a proton. An antineutron, it's harder to think about because neutrons have no charge, but the quarks have charge. So you ha add up a set of quarks whose total charge is zero, and that makes a neutron, and an antiproton is made up of a set of antiquarks, which are different, which, whose total charge is also zero, because you take two-thirds minus a third minus a third, or you take minus two-thirds plus a third plus a third, you get zero in both cases. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Antimatter is something that the theory automatically says is there. Now we have to go look for it and say, why isn't it? I mean, how come we live in a world where we're surrounded with matter, but we don't see antimatter? Well, we do see it when we do experiments in at high energies, where we create sufficiently strong fields that particles plus antiparticles are produced. If the world were totally symmetric between matter and antimatter, I mean, if the theory is totally symmetric between matter and antimatter, then it's a great puzzle how we live in a world which is clearly not symmetric between matter and antimatter. And the best understanding we have today is that in the early universe, when just after the Big Bang, when matter was produced in great densities, so was antimatter. Same amount of both. Matter equaled antimatter. So the real puzzle is, where did all the antimatter go? How come we live in a world where there's lots and lots of matter? Every star you see is made of matter and no antimatter. And as I, I actually have a popular book on that subject. Yeah. It's called The Mystery of the Missing Antimatter. Okay. <laughs> well, I was, was going to ask you a little it, more about antimatter. It, so what it tells us is the theory cannot be exactly the same for matter and antimatter. There have to be differences in the theory for matter and antimatter. And that we, that we call an asymmetry. Right, an asymmetry between the mathematics of matter and the mathematics of antimatter. And most of my career is exploring what is that tiny difference mm -hmm. and how does that play out in experiments. And the B physics happens to be a laboratory to explore predictions about the differences between quarks and antiquarks. Mm. When you write the standard model with what we call three generations of quarks, so the ones that make the proton are the first generation. They're called up and down. And then there's another set, which are just like those, but a little bit heavier, so they're not stable. They're called charm and strange. And there's a third set called bottom and top. We've found all of those in the lab. And once you have three generations, then the standard model has in it a difference or the possibility to write it. Turns out with only two generations, you write the standard model. There's no difference between matter and antimatter, no matter what you do. But with three generations, you can have a difference. That's another Nobel Prize. That's Kobayashi and Muscala. Okay. <laughs> and what the B factories did, which are the experiments that I was associated with designing and planning and trying to investigate this question, is show that the standard model completely describes the differences between quarks and antiquarks that we see in B physics. So the, the predicted theory, once again, we hope, we keep hoping that the standard model won't work. Because when the theory doesn't work, you have clues about what's beyond it. As long wow. as the theory yeah. keeps working, we're not learning anything new. <laughs> right? So, what an irony. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're, but, we're very happy that we have such a successful yeah. theory, but we keep wanting when, it to break. Yeah. Because only by breaking it can we figure yeah. out what's new next. Things. Well, that, we know yeah. there's some puzzles. We know there are some things it doesn't explain, but we just have no clues from experiment what direction to go. So we're just left free to speculate mathematically, but we would like some guidance. Yeah.
<laughs> and so we're always looking for where might we see a place where the standard model doesn't quite work. Yeah. Is there a place that you think is particularly potentially fruitful for that right now? Right now, there has been a great enthusiasm in particle physics for a theory called supersymmetry. And there's good reasons why that particular idea was being pursued, but we haven't found it yet. And we haven't found it up to such a scale that the good reasons get to be less and less good reasons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it had to appear sooner yeah. to, to answer the questions we thought it might answer effectively. That's a grossly oversimplified way to say it, but it's approximately true. And so supersymmetry and, and looking for that particular direction is, people are still going to go on doing it, but it's not as exciting as it was. The other thing we know that the standard model doesn't explain is dark matter. Mm -hmm. So we hope to find particles, find out what are the particles that make up dark matter and how do we have to extend our theories to incorporate them. And we look for certain types of particles that have come up in our theories for other reasons. And one of them is the axion that comes out of work. One of the questions I explored, I said there's differences in the physics for particles and antiparticles but they only show up in the weak interactions. They don't show up in the strong interactions. In our current theory, they ought to show up in the strong interactions. Having them, you can't write a theory with a symmetry in part and not in the other part, right? There's just no mathematics that'll do, let you do that. If it's broken here, it's going to infect over there. How do you get a theory where our experimental limits on differences in the strong interactions, which are very, very strong, can be fit? Was a question I asked with Roberta Pache. And we came up with a theory that did that, and it happened to predict a particle, which is possibly a particle that could be the dark matter. Hmm. And so that's something that is being explored. And, and then people have taken variants of that, which not exactly the same, but the, this whole idea, they call them, our particles called the axion, and they talk about axion-like particles as dark matter particles. And people are devising very clever experiments to search for those, you know, if there's dark matter and it's made out of these particles, they're coming through this room right now. All we have to do is put the right detector here. <laughs> and all we have to do, they've been working very, very hard for 30 years and haven't yet seen any axions, but the, the experiments are getting cleverer and cleverer. <laughs> even if dark matter is remaining just as elusive as <laughs> before. Could, could you actually tell us what dark matter is? Okay. So when we model the universe, we find that the way stars move around one another, that we now have five completely separate strands of evidence that tell us that in, in the universe, matter clusters, and it clusters into things we call galaxies, and within the galaxies into stars. And galaxies are actually embedded in clusters of, in galaxy clusters. And all of this structure evolved in the universe due to gravity after the time the universe first became transparent to light, because we can look back at what the universe looked like when it first became transparent to light by looking at the light that comes to us from that time. That's called the cosmic background radiation. And we can find that that radiation comes from a time when the universe was very, very uniform. What we actually measure is the temperature of the black body radiation. And we look at the black body radiation coming from every different direction. And we can find a frame of reference in which 
that radiation is coming to us at the same temperature to one part in a million from all directions. And, and since that temperature is a measure of how long since the universe became transparent to light over there or over there, and that time would depend on the density of the universe, that tells us that the universe was very uniform in density, had tiny variations. Mm -hmm. And all the structure we see today comes from gravitational clumping of the overdense regions since that time. And in looking at... So one of the reasons we think there's dark matter is that when we try to model the history of the universe, if we didn't put some material, some particles in there that have all the properties to be dark matter and clump and form the gravitational trap in which the clusters of galaxies and the galaxies form, we wouldn't get a universe that looks anything like the one we have today. Models for, for the evolution of the universe from the time it became transparent, where we know its condition, to today need dark matter. Mm -hmm. That's not the first reason we thought there was dark matter. The first reason is models for galaxies that ask how do the stars in the outer part of the galaxy move around the center of the galaxy can't explain. Theory of gravity should explain that motion. It doesn't unless there's something other than the stars in the galaxy and that something is a diffuse cloud of massive stuff. So in order to explain the behavior of stars in galaxies, we need dark matter. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm really interested in how kind of scientific knowledge develops and is formed. So dark matter, I, I presume, was probably a lot like quarks, where when it was first... 1930s. Was, really? Okay. Right? Uh, he invented the term saying, look, there's this mass that's not stars in galaxies. Otherwise, we can't ex explain the motion of the stars. Now, that mass could have been rocks, it could have been black holes, it could have been very small objects that were just not like a planet. They don't shine because they're not big enough to become a star. He just said something that's dark, so it's not light like a star, right? That's the, where the term dark matter came from. That was based on, on data from various people, Vera Rubin, one of them, that said, what's the motion of the stars in a spiral galaxy around the center of the galaxy? Very poor data, but the difference between having the, having the dark matter and not having the dark matter is a very different pattern mm. for how the vel velocity of the stars changes as you go out from the center of the galaxy. So you had the evidence, and you came up with an idea. There's something there. We don't know what it is, and that was called dark matter. And I don't think people thought that was completely crazy, mm -hmm. but they didn't think it was anything peculiar. They just thought it was something that wasn't stars. Mm -hmm. As we go on and we get more and more evidence and more and more information, it's very unlikely that it's made of ordinary matter because it doesn't interact in the right way. So, you know, it could be just a diffuse gas of ordinary matter. But if it is, because it's confined to a certain region in space-time, it has a certain energy scale. Again, the energy being inversely proportional to the size. So it actually radiates in the X-ray. And you look at galaxies in the X-ray, and you see some amount of light coming from them. Talking a little bit about science more broadly, and how science operates, how we are taught to think about science, and... We're uh, not taught to think about science, generally <laughs> yeah. speaking. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Most traditionally, science education has taught the results of science. So we tell you, there is dark matter. Believe me, I know. Right? That's not teaching you about science. Yeah. Right. Well, there are black holes. We found them. Right. <laughs> okay. 
that doesn't tell you anything about the long story I was telling you about how we got to know that there's dark matter. So teaching science and talking about science, I think we should say more about how we know what we know and less about what we know. Mm. We, we teach science as if it's religion, as if it's a bunch of dogma to be learned rather than a bunch of ideas to be understood. Mm. It shouldn't be taught as dogma also because unlike dogma, it evolves. It evolves as more evidence is collected. And we never actually prove anything true in science because proof is a very absolute idea. Things, if, if something is true, it has to be completely true. And our theories, even our very most tested theories, are only tested for some range of conditions. So we know, we, we know they're very good under all the conditions we've tested, but if we could test under a completely different condition, maybe we'd find they don't quite work, and we'd have to modify them. And that's the way science progresses. And that's also why we built high-energy accelerators, because we can get to some new conditions which, where we haven't looked yet and, and test our theory in a range where it hasn't yet been tested. Yeah, you've written about this, and you've also helped author a major study on science education, uh, creating standards, uh, proposing standards for, for teaching. And I, I didn't know if you could talk about some words and their meanings. So I'm going to throw out a word and you tell me what it means for a scientist. How does that okay, sound? Okay, that right. sounds reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let me start first off with one that you've, you've used already today, and that's um, hypothesis. What does that mean to a scientist? It actually means a prediction from a theory for an experiment I can do. If I want to test a theory, I say, hmm, what could I do? And what does this theory tell me I should see when I do that. If the theory doesn't do, doesn't match what I actually see when I do it, then my theory's wrong. That's how you test theories. You try to find places where it might be wrong. And so you look at making a prediction, but that prediction is a hypothesis because it hasn't yet been tested. The theory is, in a sense, a hypothetical answer. Basically, what we're doing is we're, we're building an explanation planetary network of theories. And those theories allow us to predict things that we haven't yet tested. And that means you know, it can be simple enough. I build a new machine, I can predict how that machine will behave. And that's pretty reliable because that machine is behaving under conditions where my theory, which I use to build the machine, has been well tested. And therefore I can very reliably predict what that machine is going to do and that's not a hypothesis. But if I take that same theory and use it to predict something under conditions where the theory hasn't yet been tested, that's a hypothesis. And I better test it if I can. Yeah. So I build an experiment which probes that region which hasn't yet been tested. And I find out whether my theory still works for that region or whether I need to modify it. And what's a so a hypothesis is very different from a guess. Mm -hmm. It's a prediction based on theory or based on a model of the system that I'm trying to work with and explain. Well, that was my next question, actually. What does a model mean to a scientist? In, in their... uh, it means different things to different people. So we have to be very careful. A model, let me give you an example. It's better mm -hmm. than, than trying to explain it in the abstract. So let's take the kinetic theory of gases. Right, So we think of gases as being particles moving around in air. Air is particles moving around in space. 
and they're colliding. And when they collide, they interact in certain ways and there's chemistry happens or there's physics happens when they interact. So now let me say, I can express that theory in a sophisticated mathematical form, or can I express it in the words I just said, which is a model of what the sophisticated mathematics describes. So I have a mental model of air as a bunch of particles moving around. That's a model. Mm -hmm. the, the theory is all the mathematics that tells you what happens as those particles move around and collide in much more detail than, than the model. If I go to the ideal gas model, I say, let me approximate all those particles as point light objects with no structure. So they just collide and bounce off one another and they never interact. That's a simplified model. And from that simplified model, I can derive, that's called an ideal gas. And from that model, I can derive the ideal gas laws as the mathematics of predicting of how pressure and temperature and volume change for a gas in a container. There's, there's the underlying sophisticated theory. There's a simplified model, which is a picture of what that theory is describing. And there's consequences I can derive from that model, which are predictions for what I should measure when I... I can also derive that from the more complicated theory, but it's easier to go through the, the stepwise process for simple bulk properties. You don't need the sophisticated model. You can go with the... or the sophisticated theory, you can go with the simplified model. Yeah, and that actually brings me to the, to the last word in this kind of trilogy, and that is theory. Because I think in a lot of kind of common usage, theory is something that's abstract, not or, true. Or, I mean, in everyday usage, theory is, again, not very different from guess. Right, that's... Right, I have a theory as to why that happened. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm my best guess is it happened that way. Yeah, yeah. So we have to talk about different sciences slightly differently, but... For a physicist, a theory is a mathematically well-defined description of the properties of a system. So the theory of electromagnetism tells you how electric and magnetic fields interact with charges and how charges interact with one another through electric and magnetic field. Chemistry is pretty much like physics in, at the deepest level. It's quantum mechanics written in the same kinds of mathematics. Biology and ecology, much less so. There is mathematical and, you know, there's biophysics and mathematical physics, but a chemist or a biologist would not say theory is mathematics. Mm. They'd say theory is the interactions of... So the word interaction would come, mm. but it's a description. Theory is a description of the behavior of a system or the behavior you would expect for systems made of the objects that exist in this theory. So I have a tough word now, I think, mm -hmm. one I haven't seen you write about, and that's fact. I think a fact, so if we, if we go back to Poincaré, when Poincaré said facts, he meant data. Mm -hmm. Fact is a measurement, mm -hmm. an observation. Right? That's one kind of fact. There's the other kind of fact, the fact that if I pick this thing up and let it go, it's a fact, it's gonna fall. Right, That's a prediction from a theory which has been so well tested that there's no chance it's going to do anything else. That's also a fact, and it's not an observation. So there are observational facts, and there are theoretically predicted behaviors which are reliable. Those are also facts. 
And now the question is, what degree of reliability do you have to have before it's a fact? That's not an answerable question, <laughs> but uh, I think you'll agree with me that it's a reliable fact that things fall down when you let them go, <laughs> when you're standing on the surface of the earth. Um, uh, but, uh, the reason, but that is the prediction of a theory. The reason I, I asked is because I was thinking about how science is perceived in the public and how scientists can talk about theories as essentially, for lack of a better word, a, a fact or something that's... Ah, so when we start calling something the theory of, yeah. it means this is a theory where we've done a lot of testing and we have enough evidence that we can say for sure in the everyday usage of sure <laughs> that that theory is going to be part of whatever final theory we ever get to, no matter how much we revise it, the features that I'm telling you about here today are going to stay there because we've tested them over and over and over again. And we have enough evidence to say anything that I'm telling you based on this part of this theory is reliable. So the theory of gravity, the theory of electromagnetism, the theory of evolution, there's a huge amount of evidence behind those. Even the Big Bang theory, mm -hmm. right? The theory of cause of the evolution of the universe. We have a very intricate set of observations that have been put together that are consistent with that theory. And so if it's not right in every detail, and not, no theory ever is, uh, the new theory that we make to correct those details that we haven't yet got right will contain the core idea of evolution, will contain the core idea of the evolution of the universe, will contain the core idea of gravity. Right? Those ideas are not going to go away. The way we interpret the theory can change a little. I'm saying of theory persists. Kuhn talks about, what's he call them? Paradigms. Paradigm shifts. Mm -hmm. Take the paradigm shift from Newton to Einstein, from Newtonian mechanics to special relativity, and from, from gravity, classical gravity to quantum gravity, to uh, general relativity. In each case, any truth that Newton told you is still true under certain conditions in Einstein's new theories, right? They're approximations rather than truths, but they're approximations which under certain conditions are such good approximations that you can still call them true, right? <laughs> if you're driving at 10 miles an hour, you really don't have to worry about corrections which are proportional to 10 miles an hour over the speed of light. <laughs> right. Yeah. What do you think today is one of the greatest misperceptions of science? Well, I think there's, there's sort of two contradictory misperceptions. And, and one is that, that science is rigid, that it just it's telling us a set of rules. And this is a set of rules that people have chosen or you know, decide they believe in. And I can either accept or refuse that set of rules. But I... The other is that science is so malleable that I needn't pay any attention to it because whatever they say today, it's going to be different tomorrow. And in fact, it's neither rigid nor so malleable. As I was trying to explain, it evolves, but it ev what we understand evolves. That's because we keep trying to change it. Uh, 
there's a certain core that's very reliable, and the, the word reliable keeps coming up, right? It's a question of can we reliably predict outcomes if we do something? Because that's actually what's useful about science. It helps us extend our intuition and predict outcomes where our intuition is not very good. Mm. And that's particularly true for complex multivariable systems, right? We're very good at keeping track of one or two things, but we can't keep track of several hundred things at once. And yet to, to predict the future of the climate, for example, you have to keep track of many, many things. And so thinking it through is very hard. But the theory put together with a model that calculates the predictions of that theory can, in fact, give us a much longer range prediction than we can ever get by just what we can look at directly. Um, and you've written about the idea of scientific metaphysics. When you get to the point where you're predicting things that you will never be able to measure, like universes outside of this one, mm -hmm. other than this one, we cannot observe anything that is not in our universe. And yet, I find it completely convincing that it's a good theory to talk about multiple universes because it makes the, the Big Bang of our universe seem much more reasonable, right? So, but that's metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Where the Big Bang came from, what started it, is outside anything we can test. Mm. So that's metaphysics in the sense that it's untestable. Now, people talk about metaphysics as if it's, I mean, people use the term metaphysics for things which are not even physics, right? So while I call it scientific metaphysics, I'm trying to say it works by the same rules as science. It uses the mathematical theories that we have developed and tested and understand, describe the things we know about, and it, but it extrapolates those theories to regions which are actually outside our universe, mm -hmm. right? So what's the difference between that and inferential knowledge? Oh, inferential knowledge is knowledge about things we can observe that we infer by building a theory which describes the set of cases we have observed and then allows us to infer what will happen in a case we haven't yet observed. The other thing that I, I, I was struck in one of your articles, in which you talk about the moral and ethical constraints that scientists should put on themselves, that there maybe are questions that are things that a scientist could ask and answer, but maybe shouldn't ask and find the answer to. I was wondering if you could talk more about you know, the role of ethics in well, science. Well, first, first of all, there's the internal ethics of science which is the, the ethics of honest reporting, right? It's, it's critical that scientists report both their successes and their failures. And one of the flaws of modern science is that we tend not to report the cases where the experiment didn't work. We report we were searching for something and we didn't find it. At least in physics, we do those, those kinds of searches. But it's much easier to publish a result where you have a result than it is to publish a result where there's no interesting statistics, there's no statistically interesting answer. And so there's a publication bias, and this is particularly true in the social sciences where many, many experiments yield null results, and those null results don't get published. And then we wonder why things which looked as if they were three standard deviations true are not reproduced in the next experiment. Well, that's because there were a hundred other experiments that weren't published. Mm 
<laughs> the, the three standard deviations were a fluctuation, and only the fluctuation got published. That's not good. Yeah. So there's there's a statistics of of measurement that tells us that that we learn more when we report all the measurements. But it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do because, first of all, and, and in many cases, each measurement is somewhat different. And so there's a trying to find which one should be lumped together is hard. It's different in physics, but the the whole question of what do we report and how do we report it and how truthfully we report the cases where things did not pan out the way we expected is something that I think is, is the ethics of science that, that you do report all of this. Mm. And, and that, that's internal. Now, the question of science you shouldn't do, that doesn't enter so much in the field of particle physics where in order to reach the region we're looking at, you have to build very specialized equipment. So it's not going to have impacts for everyday life. For example, the question of cloning humans, mm -hmm. right? Is that science you should do or not do? That's, a, that's an ethical decision I think the, the community of biology has to seriously wrestle with. There are things you, that science allows you to do that you shouldn't do. Now, science allows you to make nuclear bombs, but probably you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? So we did at one time in history and with horrible consequences. Now we know those consequences, we shouldn't do it again, but we still do. So the science itself is not what you shouldn't do. It's the consequences of the science for society. And the question, I mean, when you say we will not explore certain areas of science, that's actually very hard to say ahead of time, which of the areas of science will have consequences that you allow. When you do invent something new, it allows you to do new things and you have no idea what those new things are going mm -hmm. to be. So trying to prevent new capabilities by preventing research, fundamental research in genetics or in physics won't work. But building things that have risky results for society or for, for the world, that's mm -hmm. something which is not really just the scientists make those decisions. The scientists don't have control. They certainly can say what they want to say, but that becomes a social decision of a much bigger society. I was just going to ask you about how decision-making on those type of things happen or how you'd imagine they should happen. Well, people have conferences and discuss it. For example, there was a conference a short time ago about geoengineering. So suppose you could engineer ways of minimizing climate change while there's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. For example, by putting particles in the atmosphere. You, in fact, can engineer such things, should you? Is that an area you should research in? And it's, it's really the question of, can you predict all the consequences of the action well enough to know that this is a safe thing to do? But people discuss the ethics of, should that research be going on or not? And because we have in the past done things without recognizing the consequences, and the question is how good are we at predicting the consequences of fairly dramatic actions? I mean, if you're making an action which changes things over a short term, probably that's pretty safe, but you better worry about all the consequences. And so the, 
the don't go there is usually you don't understand enough to make a good prediction of the consequences. And, and if you follow that path of research, it's probable that somebody's going to do it if you make it possible for them to do it, mm-hmm. should you or shouldn't you. But in general, it's very, very hard to make any ironclad agreement that people won't use knowledge, yeah. right? We have a few international treaties that say we won't use chemical weapons, but people use chemical weapons. It's very, very hard to regulate what people do with knowledge once the knowledge exists. And it's very, very hard to predict what you could do with the knowledge before you have the knowledge. So trying to regulate what research is done on the basis of it might produce knowledge that's dangerous hasn't worked so far. Yeah. Um, well, that gets me to the last thing I was hoping to talk about, which was education. And hopefully with greater science education, we can make better decisions about our future and be more knowledgeable of our, of our world. And I, I didn't know if you could talk a little bit about your own experience with science education and the report that you helped author at the National Academy of Sciences. So I was lucky enough at the moment I was retiring to be chair of the board on science education at the National Academy. And the Carnegie Corporation of New York came saying, we need a study of what should we be teaching in science, sort of rethinking for today, what, what is the basis of what we teach? And I got to chair that study. So that study consisted of nine scientists across a wide range of fields of science, all members of the National Academy, a couple of them Nobel Prize winners, and nine educators, people who do research on learning or have had experience as state science supervisors in schools, which means they've had experience in schools at all levels to get to that kind of position, or are teachers of teachers. There weren't any teachers on the panel because the the work is something that takes enough time and coming to meetings that it would be very hard for teachers to do. But there were people who had been teachers and who are now education researchers or had been teachers and were now state science supervisors. Bringing together to say, what does science research and research on learning tell us? And what does the world today tell us is important for everybody to know. And... Every student. So we're not saying this is what you need to know in order to become a scientist. It's, this is what you need to, in order to live in the world of today, mm-hmm. where you live surrounded by science. And you're going to have to make decisions for yourself and your community in which understanding a little science will help you make that decision better. So we think of it as education for everybody so that we have an informed citizenry and so that people can incorporate knowledge from science into their decisions for their own lives rather than, okay, we're going to produce more scientists and engineers or more people who are capable of doing STEM jobs. But if you do the job right, you do that too. One of the things that I read in the report talks about equity and diversity. I don't know if you could talk more about access to science education. and Traditionally... Science education has been very non-diverse. It's been the realm of the privileged. Only the best students get to take these courses. Only the best students get to go to the best math courses, the top-level math courses. Math and science have both been gatekeepers in the sense that the way we taught them in school was we're going to we're going to sift and sort. And at the top, we're going to get the students who are really the best, and they're the ones who are going to send to college to study science and math or engineering. But 
who's the top student? Well, that has depended on what they got before they came to school and what they got outside school as well as what they got inside school. So in effect, that demand for we want science to be track, tracking the best students into these good courses meant that we were excluding large fractions of the population and also actually drawing in very few women because women don't particularly, girls uh, avoid that kind of competitive atmosphere. The way we taught science and math as abstract knowledge that you should learn so you can do these things later didn't appeal. So when you were in graduate school, how many other women were with you? One woman in my class who dropped out after one quarter and a couple of other women among the total, I mean, at my age group, women in physics are 2%. And there were maybe a hundred and odd graduate students. There were three or four of us mm -hmm. over multiple classes, right? Yeah. And what was it like for you in that type of environment? Well, since I grew up with three brothers, I was used to arguing with the boys. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it didn't really bother me. Uh, it did socially. Socially, it was very isolating. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, in terms of being part of the, the class where I was the only girl in the class, I was not afraid to speak up. It's funny, socially I'm kind of shy, mm. but in that intellectual atmosphere of we're all trying to understand this, uh, I played the game along with everybody else and it didn't really matter to me that I was the only girl. Mm. And uh, your father, the engineer, was he supportive? Very, mm. yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, my father liked to foment family argumentation, right? He liked to put a, we sit down to dinner, he'd put a problem on the table and we'd all argue about it, right? That was his idea of a good family conversation. Well, that, well, that gets at what you were saying about the external. And so, yeah, the things that happen outside yeah. of school are, are, are important. Yeah. If we want a larger fraction, as, as the population becomes diverse, it's a problem to have only a small fraction, what is now, half the population, mm -hmm. to be drawing our scientists from less than half, if you don't include women, it's 25%, right? Uh, you're really cutting off options and you won't have the people you need. And besides, much of science needs the diversities of viewpoints because it brings differences in ideas and differences in ways of approaching things. Yeah. I think that's less true for physics just because it is so mathematical. Mm -hmm. So social background is less relevant, but if you're going to think about social sciences, for sure, having people from different perspectives matters mm -hmm. in thinking about what the questions are and how to what to do about them. So we want science education to be something which is engaging, that students want to learn about more science, and we want them to see how science works, not just learn the results of that work. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from the way science has been taught. One of the things that I, I, I noted when I read through the report is a, a distinction that you and your colleagues seem to draw, uh, draw between what we might think of as hard scientists, physics, and engineering. And I don't know if you could talk about the, the differences in, in, in those. Yeah, we actually tried to, to write a short phrase, right? So. People talk these days all the time about STEM, and nobody has a clue what STEM really is, right? Mm -hmm. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So 
what science uses mathematics as a tool all the way. You know, mathematics is one of the things that scientists do. We don't do pure mathematics, but we use mathematics all the time in the work we do. So do engineers. But engineering is a process of design by which scientific knowledge gets transferred into technology. You design and make things using scientific understandings of how things work, and that makes new technologies. If we have new science, we can make new technologies. Once we have the new technologies, that gives us new tools to do new science. So it's a, it's a circular route. And engineers actually play a role in both places because they take the science and build the new technologies. They also design the instruments with the new technologies that allow us to do the new science. So the engineering process is the process of taking what you know and designing a solution to a problem. And that solution can be a thing or it could be just a, a process, right? It could be a system that is not a physical system, but a processing system. Now, uh, where does medicine fit into all this? Medicine is yet another discipline. Medicine is the practice of applying the science you know and the, the technologies that you have for human health. The, the thing is, if somebody's sick, you don't say, hmm, I don't really understand this disease. I have to go away and study it for five years to fix it, right? So you have to do, science has the privilege of saying, I don't reach a conclusion until I know enough to reach a conclusion. Medicine has to make a decision based on what they know now. And so medicine is applied science, yes. But any applied science, medicine, agriculture, engineering, have to do things now with what we know now. And therefore, we design the best solution, the best treatment, the best way to grow a crop based on current knowledge. And when science gets a little bit further along and knows something more, we may decide that that treatment isn't, after all, the best one we could do, or that way of growing the crop isn't the best, and we come up with new ways of doing things, or new machines if we're an engineer. So both things keep evolving. Medicine is a practice, agriculture is a practice, and that practice should be informed by science, and is, but it's also got to work at in, in cases where the science doesn't give the answer. One of the other uh, things I want to ask about has to do with how you define the various categories of science in the report. If I remember, there is uh, Earth and space science. Yeah, so we, we, we <laughs> this is actually defined by the fact that we had the funding to have four support teams. Mm. And originally, somebody came to me and said, well, we can have physics, chemistry, biology, and Earth science. Those will be our four support teams. And I said, no, we need an engineering support team because we need. We knew we wanted to put engineering in there because if engineering isn't in the science part of K-12, it isn't anywhere in K-12. And it's a travesty in today's world if a kid goes through 12 years, 13 years of schooling and doesn't comes out of there not knowing anything about I what engineers engineering. are and yep. do. Right? Yep. Don't, they don't even know it exists as a, as a discipline, right? That's wrong. So we, we had decided that engineering was going to be part of it. So I said, we need a team for engineering. That means we can't do physics, chemistry. And mm -hmm. So what are we going to do? And we said physical sciences, which is physics and chemistry, life sciences, which is biology and ecology, 
Earth and space sciences, which, I mean, Earth sciences, there's a lot of them, right? You've got geology, meteorology, atmospheric science. You can count them whatever way, but we put them all together. Yeah. And we put space together with Earth because going from the Earth systems to the space systems. Well, that was my question. Uh, okay. Right. So would astronomy then be in... Astronomy is space science, yes. Astrophysics? Astronomy, I mean, there's not much of that in yeah. the K-12 curriculum. But okay. yeah, astronomy, astrophysics... Plasma physics, you know, solar physics, mm -hmm. all of those things would be under the label Earth and Space Science. Okay. The, the part of plasma physics that has to do with space, at least. Plasma physics also has a, an engineering more side to it, right? If you're trying to develop fusion power, you need plasma physics too. Mm -hmm. But for K-12, there's not very much you need to know, but we felt that you know, just to be a person living in the world today, you need to know that the Earth is not the center of the universe, that there are many planets other than this one, that there are many, many stars, etc. You need to have some sense of the scale of what's out there, just to understand the world you live in. And so that, that had to be somewhere, and we put it together with Earth sciences. Because if you start thinking about the history of the Earth, it gets you into deep time, mm -hmm. and then you go into deep time into the history of the universe. Yeah. So we put a little bit of thinking beyond the Earth into the K-12 curriculum because we figure everybody, you know, there are many people who don't take any more science beyond what they study in K-12. Mm -hmm. And you, I think you want everybody in the world today to know something about the universe. Yeah. So we had to put them somewhere. And now, um, so you released this report and how is it received? Well, we didn't, we released the report and then there was a second study, which was to produce a set of standards mm -hmm. based on it. Mm -hmm. It also went out to the academic world of education research, nationally and internationally. I've seen the report in Korean, for example. Wow. So it's, it's had impacts worldwide. But if you want to talk about what happens with it in this country, it goes to organization called Achieve with funding again from the Carnegie Corporation to develop a set of standards based on that study. That set of standards is called Next Generation Science Standards. We now have, I think it's 18, 19 states who've adopted Next Generation Science Standards. We have 42, three, four, it depends how you count a bit, states who've adopted something very like Next Generation Science Standards, but not always exactly Next Generation Science Standards. So standards based on that report now have been adopted by about 44 states. And there's a few other states who are still thinking about it. So it's that's a big yeah. impact. That's a big impact. The standards in Belgium look awfully like something based on that report, and Holland too. So it, it's had its influences. Now, had you thought about science education before you were tasked with this? or? Well, because I was on the board on, sci board on science education, which I started when I joined the academy, Yes, I had been thinking about science education in that context. Also, just throughout my career at SLAC, I ran outreach programs for teachers mm. and worked with high school physics and chemistry teachers in summer courses, ran summer courses for them. Even earlier, when actually when I was thinking about going for a PhD, I really wasn't terribly confident. And I thought, well, I'll just do a master's degree, actually, and then I'll go and be a high school teacher. And again, after my first postdoc in Germany, I had a year without a job, and I took education courses and did student teaching in a high school. So education had always been part of my interest. 
but I hadn't been deeply engaged in it for most of my career, aside from running these summer programs for physics teachers who are interested in learning something about particle physics, mm -hmm. until I was invited to join the Board on Science Education. And then I learned more about education research mm -hmm and the work on which the framework is based. Yeah, and uh, so it's, it was that research that I wanted to ask you about as well, because one of the things that has certainly come out of this conversation is that science and scientific knowledge always evolves. I think you've, you've, you've used that mm -hmm. word a few times. How has the standards themselves evolved, if at all, after? Over time? Yeah. Oh, after. Well, what, what have you learned, you know, in the years since they've been released? Changes that maybe... You, you might think it's a long time. <laughs> However, change takes time, right? So I was just talking to somebody this morning who was interviewing me about California and what's happened in California. So let's take California as an example. The study came out in 2000, late 2011. The standards came out early 2013. California adopted them maybe two years later. I'm not sure exactly when. But when the states first started adopting them, there were no curriculum materials. Mm. Because which, what publisher is going to write p materials based on standards that nobody's using, right? States had tests based on their previous standards. So whatever state testing of science is done, and it's done once in elementary, once in middle, and once in high school by federal law, mm. was very much based on the previous standards. So that had to change. Teachers need, if you're going to ask them to teach a different way, you need some teacher education. So both the pre-service education for teachers and ongoing education for teachers needs to help the teachers understand what they're being asked to do and provide, the, the districts have to provide the, the textbooks and materials and resources that allow them to do what you're asking them to do. This all takes time. Mm -hmm. And... If you were to go around schools in California and look for, is their teaching aligned to the NGSS standards that California has adopted? You'd find it very uneven. Some are much further down the road than others. Some districts have barely begun to change. Others have put a lot of effort into it and had exterior support of one kind or another to help with the teacher education and invented their own curricula. Only last year did California go through the process of saying, we as a state think these are the materials that are best aligned to these standards. So only now, if at all, are schools beginning to buy new materials and new textbooks to align to new courses that they're trying to teach. So there's a whole, the process of change is long and slow and needs to be. You can't expect systems as massive as the education system of the state of California to change overnight just because somebody says, these are the new standards. Different people react differently to change, right? Some teachers are on the bandwagon and going to professional association meetings and really trying to get ahead and do it. Others are saying, well, it seems to be working for them, so I'll follow along. And others are saying, I've taught this way for 40 years. I'm not going to change, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there's always that spectrum too. Changes, change is a process, not an event. Now... For our listeners, if there was one thing that you would like a student to walk away with in the K-12, they're 20 years old, if there's one thing that they take with them from their science education, what would it be? That science is something you do, not something you know. Having thought a lot about science and how to teach science and the scientific method and how knowledge is kind of created in the sciences... What about the humanities? I mean, do you see parallels? Are they distinct? Are they different? Well, 
is history a humanity or is it a social science? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where you draw these lines. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yep. But, but... Uh, Universities so, do rather arbitrarily. So, so, absolutely, you know. absolutely. And, and there's a history educator at Stanford who talks about teaching history through reading like a historian. And he looked at my set of practices for the sciences and he said, I could write the same list for history, right? Because it's asking questions, developing models, planning and carrying out investigations, analyzing and interpreting data. Maybe you wouldn't use the next one so much, using mathematics and computational thinking, but you do because you do demographics and you do statistics. And the, the mathematical thinking is, is there in your data interpretation, right? Uh, developing explanations arguing from evidence, and obtaining, evaluating, and communicating information. Every one of those things is things that a historian does. Yeah. Does them with different purpose and, and with different kinds of materials, but the practices of social science are the practices of science, right? What's different between social science and natural science is the system we're investigating. And... Therefore, what we can and can't control about that system, right? And it's, I don't think there's a sharp line. I mean, is, is psychology a natural science? Yes and no, right? Well, I wonder, in, in history, I wonder about testability. Because you also talk about the importance of reproducibility of... So there it's the question of consistency. Mm -hmm. So I talk a lot about that in, in thinking about how science theory builds, yeah. right? We, we have to... Make sure the way we test our theory is saying our theory is our theory consistent with everything we know about the history, mm -hmm. right? And that's how we do the theory of evolution in biology, or the theory of evolution of the galaxies, or the evolution, right? All of astrophysics, all of cosmology, is like history. A, his, a, a matter of taking the evidence we have and trying to reconstruct the mm -hmm. past. Yes, predict the future too. So you. The, the first thing you have to do is be able to match all the evidence from the past. So there could be a, a scientific consensus in, in your field in a way that I wonder if in, it's different in history, because I think about my own field with the American Revolution, where there may be a school of sc scholars who say it was economic forces that caused the American Revolution. And others will say, no, the economics weren't as important as the political ideas. That's really what drove yeah, the revolution. Yeah, probably and, it was both. Right, exactly. And, hey, you know, and, 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 it's a combination of all of them. But, yeah, so you know, that's, the, that's the issue of complex systems, right? I, I think it's more like climate science, right? Where we, we have a model where we're trying to look at a system where we... We cannot control all the parameters, so we cannot do reproducible experiments. We, we can only say that we develop our models based on all the factors we know about human behavior and all the factors we know about the, the events that happened. And it, do we have a consistent story? And saying it's, I think that this, this you know, it's either A or B is, is a, a floor of human thinking, right? We, we tend to want to say it's one cause, but it's not. Yeah. And it, it isn't in, climate, in the climate and it isn't in, in the civil war either, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and trying to figure out the percentages, that's really hard, yeah. right? 
especially when there's so many different variables when you think about individual choice and yeah and exactly things. well but even when there's no individual choice if we're talking about model and climate mm -hmm, right? right as soon as we start predicting with climate models yes we're talking about individual choice mm -hmm. because predicting 10 years from now depends on what people do mm -hmm. tomorrow right yeah <laughs> so it has the same problems as as history and and predicting human behavior yeah. I don't think there's a clean line between the social sciences and the natural sciences. Now, I'll, I have colleagues who would say the natural the social sciences aren't science, mm -hmm. but that's an opinion, meaning they can't control the variables well enough mm -hmm. to do science. Yeah. But I think you can do science. It's just a lot harder when you can't control the variables. Yeah, yeah. So the, the beauty of particle physics is we can control pretty much everything. When we do our experiments, so we we then we find a theory, and what we figure figure up is our theory makes predictions that we just cannot reach with our experiments because we can't build big enough accelerators; they're much too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> right. When 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 you make an extrapolation which says, "Oh yeah, we can we can make this theory unified," but it unifies at a scale where telling the difference between the pieces and the unified theory would require accelerators that are bigger than the Earth, well, we're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you believe there can be a unified theory? Um, there certainly can be, whether there is or not. Ah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's the, yeah. And, and as you know from my article, it's not about belief. Yeah, right. It's about probability and, and reliability and what does the evidence say. The evidence says all the pieces are mathematically consistent with their being a single theory from which these pieces came. However, the scale at which the pieces come together, if we just extrapolate from what we know at our scales, is so high that it could be that some other modification of the theory intervenes before we get to that scale. A modification of the theory to which we're not at all sensitive at this scale. So for example, string theory. If string theory is the answer rather than field theory, Maybe we're into the stringy regime before we get to the unification scale. So talking about the unified theory isn't really relevant. So we just don't know. Yeah. But certainly mathematically, it's very attractive to put it together and make it a unified theory. I was really struck by how well you know the history of many of these ideas, going back to you know this happened in the 1960s. Is that common among scientists to kind of understand the evolution? Well, certain major events. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, you probably won't find a physicist that can't tell you when Einstein wrote his papers. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So some of the history, the paradigm shifts, mm -hmm. we know when they, they happened. Yeah. And I was mostly talking about things on that scale of mm -hmm. importance, yeah. right, and shifting yeah. ideas. Yeah. I don't know the detailed history. Yeah, but are they? Is that formally taught and, in graduate school? And the school other or? thing is, because I've written books on the subject, I've looked for, tried to understand some yeah. of that history too. Now, are graduate students? It's not taught in no. graduate school. Yeah. No, I mean, you may when you teach the Dirac equation, you may mention when it when it was first written down, but that's not the point. The point is to understand the equation, yeah. right? It's actually why I like having those two metals. I told you there are two kinds of particles. One is described by Dirac's equation, and the other is described by something called the Klein-Gordon equation. So the Klein metal is the other half. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, but in your proposed science education, the evolution of these ideas would be more prominent? or uh, That, I think, is left. We, we did not stress history. Okay. 
Uh, there was one member of the committee who would have liked us to, to insist that science was taught through historical experiments. I think there are cases where the, the, the historical example is appropriate for the K-12 teaching, and there are cases where it's not. And if you try, history is very convoluted. Mm -hmm. Right, because we make many mistakes on the way to the right answers. Yeah. And we don't want to track. I mean, yes, knowing that that's the way history works, that's important. Yeah. And we don't do enough of talking about the fact that people are confused at every stage of this process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but we don't want to completely confuse the kids by saying they have to remember this convoluted path yes. by which you got yeah, yeah. to this idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to help them understand this idea. So it's tricky. Right. What we say in the framework and you probably and played out more in the people talking about it since the framework is the students should be doing the work of explaining phenomena and we need to pick phenomena that are a interesting to the students so the students get engaged in this discussion and you actually need the science you want them to learn in order to explain that phenomena so it's no good picking a phenomenon, but it's very exciting. But the science is so buried under other complications that you can't expect them to see how that science relates to that phenomenon. Mm. Right. There's a lo lovely example from uh, Mark Winchettel at, at University of Washington. So the science that we're wanting to get to is pressure and phase change. The phenomenon is somebody steam cleans a railway tanker car and then shuts it. And a few hours later, it implodes. So there's a very dramatic phenomenon, which you can show on a video, mm -hmm. and now the kids have to explain what happened. And they can't explain that unless they think about temperature and pressure and what happens when the thing gets cold enough that all that steam condenses. All that water that was in the form of gas becomes liquid because you steam cleaned it with a hot, hot. Yeah. Now, was there anything that pushed the Carnegie Foundation to do this? Was there like a report or just a general uh, sense? or what There was, was the yeah, there was... There was a little study came out of Princeton. The history is that there are these things called Common Core, mm -hmm. math and language arts standards, yeah. which were adopted by many, many states in common. That's why they are the Common yeah. Core, yeah. partly because the federal government pushed for it yeah. and, and offered states money in com by a competition where one of the ways to qualify in the competition was to adopt these standards. So many, 45, 48 yeah. states adopted the same standards. And this little study at Princeton was put together basically to say, well, if 45 states are doing the same things in math and in language arts, why not science? Because kids move from one state to another. And if they're doing you know, circuits in grade three in one state and in grade four in another state, well, a kid can go back and forth and either get circuits twice or never. Yeah. So let's make it a uniform progress for everybody across multiple states. And let's think about how we teach science as well as we can, and then try and develop some standards that many states will adopt. And now we're there, right? We have, as I said, 44 states, 45 if you count Massachusetts, which did something slightly different, but still related, but without the federal push. No, that's the great part, because I know many people felt that the common core in history was kind of... That's why we didn't call it common yeah. core science, yeah, yeah. Yeah. right? Because we had to avoid the message that this was being now, imposed I, on you from above. You know, one of the things you've really made clear is that you wanted people to not just know the fact, but kind of understand it. Here's what you need to know, but, but also to have a better understanding of it. Did you... Is that something you came... Preconceived or did the committee, it develop? The committee came very quickly to, to agreement. It, 
And if you look at the research on learning, it, it's where the it, that comes deeply out of out of people who do experiments in classrooms about science learning. If you teach science as a bunch of facts to be remembered, a certain fraction of the kids can do very well on tests of remembering those facts. But if you test them six months later, they know nothing, mm-hmm. right? And even even if you try it the week after they've taken that test, if you give them a context where that science is relevant, they don't see the relevance. The fact is just an abstract thing. They've learned to say the right words and check the right boxes, yeah. right? But they don't know what it, how it relates to anything. They can name all the parts of the cell, but they have no idea of their functions. So teaching for useful knowledge, knowledge that people will actually take and apply when they meet a problem is different from teaching for passing a test. And all of the research on science learning said most of what we, the way we've been teaching science traditionally for most students just becomes, this is what I need to know to pass the test. And I don't understand what it has to do with anything it's, in the real world. It's remarkable to hear you describe it that way because that's exactly what history has been confronting Exactly. That it's names and dates, and, and you can take a multiple in, choice test and pass, but then you forget it, and why does it matter? And, right. And so that was, I mean, in in my experience as a learner, history was not interesting because it was just this bunch of facts I should remember, and who should I care about who was king when? Yeah. And whereas science was something that, partly because of my family and my father and mother's interests, was something that I found interesting. Mm-hmm because it was something you could struggle with and try to understand. That was the difference. Well, of course, you can struggle with history and try to understand it too, but not the way I met it in school. And my parents weren't interested in history, so (laughs) I I didn't develop that that understanding of history is fascinating too. (laughs) So what we do today depends a lot on how we learn about something early on and whether it attracts us or not. We want to teach science so it attracts more people, right? That's another. We want to teach science so people can use it in their life, and we want to teach it so it's interesting and engaging to people who don't have a father who asks them questions about how this works at home. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then just the, the parallel there with history is just really striking, you know? Because my own upbringing, I was, uh, grew up in the, outside of Boston, and my father was deeply uh, interested in history, and I was kind of immersed in it mm-hmm. from an early age. And yes. the way that just sparks things. So, well, thank you for uh, taking the time today. This was really a wonderful education for me, a historian learning a lot more about the world than I knew beforehand. So thanks. (laughs) (laughs) You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Brenna Holland and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the president's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt. 